of the law through animation. Father, we thank you that you have gathered us here together as your people to be together, to love one another, which you say is the greatest tool we have to show the world what you're about. So I thank you that we are here to know and to be together. Pray that we will grow together as well. You say in your letter to the Ephesians and elsewhere that we are being built up together, built up in love, built up uh, to be a temple for the Holy Spirit to worship you. And we're here to worship tonight through learning and through fellowship. So I pray that Holy Spirit, you will do your work for each and every one of us. Uh, Just move me out of the way and uh, speak what you need to speak. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right. Now I'm going to try. Oh, there's a piece of paper. Greg, would you do me a favor? Oh, never mind. It's passed out. (laughs) People are ahead of me. Um, I'm going to try and take over on this thing. Okay, let's see if I can. Make sure that button isn't stuck. There's a button, the arrow button. Sometimes they get stuck. Perfect. All right. So. If you haven't seen that video, which probably a lot of you haven't, it's so helpful, so simple, uh, and there's a lot more like that. I'd encourage you to um, to kind of explore those because they take kind of bigger concepts and make them much easier to understand. And so what we've been talking about is, is sanctification. And uh, sanctification, when we first defined it, was this idea of being set apart to be holy, to be blameless, to be special. Um, and we talked about this idea last week of positional sanctification. And this is where we talked last week about the law, and the law condemned everybody. And the law uh, basically revealed two things, our sinfulness and God's holiness and how we fell short of God's standard and were deserving of death. And so what happened was Christ came, Jesus in my place, there's the gospel, and he not only fulfilled the law in terms of living it out perfectly and, and, and basically creating righteousness, uh, he also fulfilled or took the uh, penalty that we or I deserve for not obeying the law. So he's in my place both as penalty, taking the death I deserved, and also giving me the life that I should have lived, and therefore the law is fulfilled. And for those who put their trust in Christ, they are saved. They are justified. They are holy and blameless in spirit before God. They are positionally in Christ. The law has been fulfilled. But as you see through that video, as we'll talk about today, that's not where the story ends. Because that law that was fulfilled for us is um, written onto our hearts. Jesus was in my place, and now Jesus is in us. And that has an effect. And so what we're talking about, um, what we talked about last week is this idea of positional sanctification. And it's up there that as we trust in the work of Jesus, our sins are atoned for, and what Jesus or God accomplished on the cross is now applied to our hearts. We are placed in Christ, irrevocably, forever, by grace, nothing we did to earn it, but we are considered in Christ. And if you read Ephesians chapter 1, it talks about the idea of being in Christ. You are redeemed in Christ, adopted in Christ, justified in Christ, forgiven in Christ, all the things we talked about last week. And so positional sanctification, or some will just call justification, but as I saw or shared last week, there's a lot more to it than just that. But positionally, positional sanctification delivers us from the penalty of sin. But 
as we get into progressive sanctification, even though we have been sanctified, even though we have been set apart, even though we are in Christ, we are being even more set apart in a sense. We are continually being sanctified. It's why Paul can say, you have been saved and God is saving you. Okay. Now, God is playing this out by His Spirit in our hearts, in our daily lives. Though we never experience perfection in this life, we will never experience that. We will continue to struggle and sin, though I believe we can and do struggle less, we will continue to struggle with sin until we are the presence of sin is totally removed from us, fully removed from this world, and that happens at the second coming. So we are positioned in Christ, and then progressive sanctification is describing our maturing in Christ, our maturing in that position, our growing up into Christ. And progressive sanctification delivers us from the influence of sin. We've already delivered from the authority. We've already in some ways been delivered from the power, but now we have been delivered from or are being delivered from its influence. Now, what I want to distinguish for us is these two words, the idea of position and the idea of practice. We are something positionally, irrevocably, God has done it, and nothing can change it. But then in practice, we don't always look like what God says we are. How do I know that? Well, I sin. I'm guessing you sin in thought and word and deed. Okay? We give in to temptation. But the hope is to get this practice to basically match our position. That over time we become in practice what we are in position. And this is where we have this distinction between union with Christ and communion with Him. Okay? And I think it's on your paper. So the it's, it's important to distinguish these two categories. The union with Christ and the communion with Christ. And this is clearly seen in um, parenting, in marriage, this idea of um, union and communion, of having a, a particular positional relationship and yet having that relationship struggle, right? I love my kids, sometimes I don't like them, okay? That idea. Now, believers are united or in union with Christ um, by the Spirit, and this is an action by God. Okay, so we take these. Th this is an act of grace. And we are, in a very real way, passive in it. God does it all. God pursues. God sends His Son. God kills His Son. God accepts His Son's sacrifice and raises His Son from the dead. We do nothing. The only thing we contribute to our union with Christ is a big pile of sin. Yea, us. Okay? And God saves us. God forgives us. God cleanses us. God does everything. He makes us alive, we who are dead. And so, we... Um, as I said, who are dead are made alive. Those who are in darkness are brought into light. Those who are enslaved are made free. All the things we talked about last week. And this is the position we stand for those who have put their trust in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. 
Communion, though, is different. Communion is the idea of um, our walking in the newness of the life that we have. So if union is being placed in Christ, communion is the idea of, as I said, maturing in Christ. And our communion, this, is supposed to flow out of this. Just as our practice is supposed to flow out of our position. What does that mean? It means that who I am in Christ should change my behavior. My behavior is not going to change my position in Christ. That's really important. You don't want to get those mixed up. Because if you get those mixed up, you will practice, 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 work really hard to live righteously, believing that God loves you more if you succeed or loves you less if you fail. This is secure by something God did. God saved. God is the one who redeemed. God is the one who's adopted. We are in His family irrevocably. We are there permanently. But our communion with Him can fluctuate. Union doesn't change. Our communion with Him is something that fluctuates and that we are active in. Okay, So this is the two categories we're talking about. This is your positional sanctification. What we're talking about tonight is your progressive sanctification. Growing and maturing in our relationship with Christ. And that maturity is evidenced by ultimately pursuing righteousness and fighting unrighteousness. That's a very general way to look at it. And the question that we we talk about pursuing righteousness People will always get back to this place like, I thought we were done with unrighteousness. I thought, I thought God did everything to make us righteous and, and now I don't have to worry about that. Well, again, we're talking about the authority and the penalty of sin in distinction to the influence of sin that we still deal with. If we look at... Um, well, I didn't give that. Communion is meant to flow from our union. Even though our union with Christ is something that does not change, our communion with Christ can fluctuate as evidenced by our gospel-driven, spirit-empowered pursuit of righteousness and fight against unrighteousness. I don't even know if that's on that sheet. Probably is somewhere. Maybe not. Okay, good. We're moving on. It's not. All right. So here's a verse we want to begin thinking about this idea of the influence of sin. Paul writes in Romans 6, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Now it's important. Because Paul is talking to believers. So he's talking to believers, and he's saying, let not sin therefore reign. So there's some kind of tension. Sin is trying to reign in our mortal bodies. In our bodies, not our souls, because our souls are positionally clear with Christ. Do not present your members, that would be any parts of your body, mind, hands, feet, whatever, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion, no authority, no power over you since you are not under law but under grace. 
So, you can see there's both this passive and active thing going on. Paul tells us, actively fight sin. Actively fight against giving yourself over to sin. Fight temptation. We have died to the authority, but we have not died to its influence. We are no longer enslaved to sin, but we are still at war with it. Now, it's a defeated enemy, but it's not a completely... Um, let's say, oh, undangerous is not a word. Um, what's the word I'm looking for? Someone give me a better word. No one? Thanks. Appreciate that. As one author wrote, there you go, benign. That's not a bad one. As one author wrote, Sin may be resident in our lives, but it's not president in our lives. Okay? It's not ruling. It's not dictating. But any time we sin, any time we give in to temptation, we have allowed it to reign in that moment. In our bodies. That's why Paul says, don't give your bodies over. That's why you can say Romans 12, your worship are living sacrifices. Okay, now, believers, um, there's two words that is going to describe this pursuit of righteousness. Big theological words, ready? One is called mortification. The word mortifies the root there. The other one is vivification. Now, these are big words. These are words you're typically not going to find in the Bible, but you'll find them in theological books from smart, dead guys that um, write about such things. Okay? And the question that um, we should be asking ourselves constantly, and this is, I think, I got, I can't remember who I got it from, is that even though we are, for those who are in Christ, are saved by grace through faith, and positionally secure in Christ, we should still be asking, how has original sin distorted me and my perspective? And how is this thing called indwelling sin still manipulating me? How has original sin distorted my view of things? And how is the remaining or indwelling sin manipulating me? Paul uh, gives us um, a verse in Romans 8.13. He says this, and this is where this concept of mortification comes from. And really what this is about is killing sin. Okay? And you could call vivification as pursuing or walking in righteousness. Godliness. Romans 8.13 says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death, kill, mortify the deeds of the body, you will live. So this concept of mortification is descriptive of the process of basically putting to death the deeds of the body. Fighting sin. Killing sin. Now historically, that idea comes from the Roman Catholic Church. You may have heard of that. 
And it was associated with kind of medieval Roman Catholicism, and it was this idea of employing kind of ascetic techniques like, you know, flogging yourself with a rope and things like that, um, fasting, extreme fasting, poverty, as a means to kill sin in the body. And Paul actually, I think, is pretty clear in condemning those kinds of external things in Colossians 2, um, 21, where he says these things have the appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they're of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. Okay? So when we talk about killing sin, we're talking about the indwelling sin of the heart. We're talking about um, that sin that still remains in there. That sin that, that our spirit is at war with. And we use the word war because of what Galatians 5 says. I say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. Right. So you have, again, talking to Christians. We have this flesh and we have the spirit and they are at war. They are against one another. And a telltale sign of a Christian, whether we can tell it or not, but for, for our own self, when we test ourselves, it is what is our disposition towards sin? Is there a tension? Even if there's not success in the fight, is there a fight? We often talk about like fighting. If you look up, there's like a thousand different fighting styles. And you know, it's kung fu and jujitsu and blah, 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 whatever, right? And then there's just like, I'm going to pull hair and kick and do whatever. Like, you can tell when someone is fighting. You may not know exactly what the fighting style is, but you know when someone's fighting and when someone's not. There's either a war going on in the heart of an individual with sin or there's not. There's either a tension and a battle or there's not. If there's no battle, if there's no tension, if there's no godly sorrow about sin, no desire to fight, then it's likely there's no Holy Spirit to fight. But Galatians says the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. They're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. And he's not talking about the good things you want to do. See, the Spirit has been put there because your flesh and the indwelling sin within there is still fighting to reign, and the Spirit has been given to you to fight that. And the Apostle Paul himself admitted this struggle. I don't think I put the verse up there, but she wrote it. In Romans 7, he talks about that. In Romans 7, he admits the reality of this battle that goes on with every Christian, at least the honest ones. Romans 7.19 says, For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. And now if I do... What I do not want, he says in verse 20, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So he will explain, I won't go into there, in 2 Corinthians 7, the difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Like, I've had plenty of people sit before me and cry about their sin. But there's a difference between worldly sorrow and godly sorrow. Godly or worldly sorrow was sorrow like, I am upset that I got caught, I'm upset maybe that well, these things have happened, these consequences, but there is no significant grief 
or any grief for that matter for what I and how I've dishonored God. And there's no desire to really repent as there is just a desire in a worldly sorrow sense to kind of like, this, let's just move on. Let's just get out of it. Godly sorrow is, I am grieved, I have dishonored God, it is Him alone who I know I've sinned against, in addition to sinning to these other people, but He is the one who is the lawgiver, He is the one I've dishonored, and I'm eager to do whatever I can to make it right. And so, Paul says, if I am doing the very thing I do not want to do, that's a sign that the Spirit of God is in me. Doesn't mean that I am 100% successful in not sinning, but it does mean that I see the battle, I see the tension, and I'm actively fighting in some way. Okay? We all know, though, that behavior without heart change, or you should know that behavior without heart change is really unhelpful. Like you can, you can put enough rules into the life of an individual and, and enough punishments to stop their behavior. But if the heart isn't changed, it's pretty hopeless. But when the heart is changed, behavior will follow. The heart doesn't always follow a change in behavior. So having been reborn into Christ positionally, we begin to grow up into Him in the sense that we begin to pursue holiness. We begin to pursue godliness. And this pursuit is not with a goal of perfection or sinlessness. That's not like, if I don't achieve sinlessness, I've somehow failed. But there is a genuine goal of living a life of holiness. You go, what's a life of holiness? Fantastic question. A life of holiness is characterized by two things. A life of holiness is a gradual weakening of sin's influence on our hearts and in our lives and a growing affection for Jesus. That's a good thing to aim for. When we talk about pursuing holiness, we are pursuing a decrease in our love for sin and an increase of our love for Christ. That's a pursuit of holiness. Now, the question is, where does this mortification begin? Where does the killing of sinful desires in me, where does that begin, these sinful desires that lead to sinful behavior that improves our communion with Christ. And again, when we talk about union communion, I think it's best to understand in the context of a marriage, in the context of a parenting relationship, like I am, um, I think I've said this for several times, like I'm married to Kayla. Yes. There you go. Okay. And um, I sin against her and have sinned against her in word and deed. And so the union that we have doesn't break when I sin. We are married. And the only prerequisite for us being married is that we're both breathing. That was what our vows said. My commitment to her was not based off of her behavior. 
My commitment to her was based off of mine. I will love you until you're done breathing. That's it. And she's the same. So I didn't commit to her based off of her love for me, off of how she, you know, lives certain ways. And I know, like, right now, because things are not as horrible as you might imagine them being, you think, well, that's easy. But no, it's, marriage is still difficult. But when I sin against her, our communion is disrupted. Our relationship is hindered. It is not rich. There's no intimacy. There is still commitment. There's still a covenant commitment that there's not joy. That's what we're talking about. There's not closeness. And so the same goes with Christ. Our goal is greater communion with Him, and that requires us to kill the sin in us or fight the sin in us that leads to sinful behavior. Now, where does that mortification begin? Well, before you can kill sin, you have to look to the Lord, and particularly the cross. You cannot fight for deeper communion with Him until you've surrendered to Him. Because only when you've surrendered to Him, when you fight for righteousness, will you be fighting from righteousness and not for it. Does that make sense? You want to fight from righteousness. I'm fighting for the fact that I am married. I'm fighting from the fact that I am loved. I'm fighting from the fact that I am a child. I'm fighting from the fact that I am saved. I'm not trying to fight for my salvation. I'm not trying to fight for God's love. It's a very different kind of fight. One's successful, one's not. Jesus does not call us to be holy prior to saving us by His grace. In fact, you can't be holy without His grace. So before you can even begin to kill sin, you have to surrender to Jesus who makes you righteous in your soul. And that happens by, um, obviously, grace. By an act that He does. And as you behold that, what do you mean behold that? As you behold salvation, as you behold the cross, as you behold Jesus and what He has done for you, despite you, what he is, how He has loved you, how He's forgiven you, how He has shown you mercy, all these things, how He has suffered for you, knowing how messed up and broken you are. As you behold that more, you're changed. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So killing sin begins by beholding the cross. And even when you become a Christian, you don't go, okay, I've beheld the cross, now let me move on to more spiritual things. Beholding the cross is primary. We must constantly preach ourselves the Gospel. Constantly talking about the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. That's where it begins. And the more we behold Jesus, I believe the more we begin to desire to behold Him. 
Paul says it uh, another way in Colossians 3, the whole chapter really, but the first couple of verses says this, If then, if you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Verse 2, set your mind on the things that are above. That would be Jesus. Not on the things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will appear with Him in glory. So, how exactly do you set your mind on Christ and behold Him? Think of it this way. When you meditate on the love that Jesus had for you, knowing all of your sins, When you realize that God is more satisfied with Jesus' obedience than He is grieved by your sin. When you reflect on the inheritance that Jesus has secured for you and hope in the future promise of being with Him. When you believe that you are not only acquitted of your guilt, but accepted as fully righteous. When your heart is filled with the glories of Jesus' victory over sin and Satan and death, when you behold those kinds of things, then you will discover that the stranglehold of your heart, particularly by sin, has grown weaker. That sin is less alluring and Jesus is more captivating. That's what it means. And you will know that you have succeeded at that. Not that you ever like, okay, I finally arrived. Paul says, I have not arrived. But you'll know that you are succeeding in setting your mind regularly when you do this. When someone asks you, how's your walk? How's your relationship with God? And I pray we're asking each other that. It may be cliche and part of Christian culture, but we need to ask each other how our relationships with with God is. How our communion with Christ is. And when someone asks you that, you will know that you are successfully and regularly and consistently setting your minds on Christ when you, in answering that question, your mind is drawn to what Jesus has done first and not what you have done or not done. When someone asks that, you are comforted, you are encouraged, you rejoice because you know your position with Christ, with God, is secure in Christ. So how's your walk? Jesus is still on the throne. Praise God. Because if it was based on me, I would not be very joyful. But it's not, praise God, it's based on His perfection. Amen. And I'm doing okay. That makes sense? When you set your mind, that's where you know you're successfully doing that because you think of what Jesus has done, His work, His love, His forgiveness, His redemption, His adoption, those things before you think about anything you've done or not done. It doesn't mean you shouldn't examine what you have done or not done. But it does mean there's a starting point, and it should be Jesus. But here comes the question. 
Is all of our effort just cerebral? Is it all just in the mind? And this is where the big tensions come from. We start using the E word, effort. Or dare I say the W word, work. Is it all cerebral? Is this just just mindful work? Is it just meditative work? I think it begins there, but to suggest that that's the only tool for sanctification, the only tool to pursue righteousness, uh, may be falling short. If we read the Bible, which I think we should do, passages like Ephesians 4 and Colossians 3 call us to be very active, to put off the old self, to put on Christ and put on the new self. In 1 Timothy 6, Paul charges, fight! Fight the good fight! Battle! In 1 Corinthians 9, he tells us to run! Discipline your body! The writer of Hebrews tells us to strive! Stir one another! You go, that doesn't sound just cerebral. James, which is not always a popular book, but one of my favorites, says, you better be a doer of the law, not just a hearer. Now, doer sounds pretty doing. Effort, work, I'm doing something. He even goes further to say, which we'll talk about next week, that faith without works was never alive. And finally, the Apostle Peter gives us this doozy. Ready? This is the beauty of, I could just like throw verses up there and be like, yeah, what are you going to do with that? Like, And it's just like, whoa, okay? This is going to blow your mind. Every time I read it, I'm like, oh my gosh. Okay, here we go. I know it's a lot of words. But I want it all on one page. I highlighted the important ones. Well, they're all important. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 10. Okay, now you got to see the order of this, right? He talks about positional sanctification. He talks about what we have in Christ and then talks about what it leads to. It says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. That's important. Really important phrase. Through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them, those promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. And then, a very common phrase in both Paul and Peter's letters, for this reason, Okay? You can go back to the first verse for this reason. Make every effort to supplement your faith. And he lists some things. Virtue. And virtue with knowledge. And knowledge with self-control. And self-control with steadfastness. And steadfastness with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection. And brotherly affection with love. Those seem like very active effort 
filled things. Again, from a position of a position in Christ, I'm making that effort. Not making that effort to get a position, making the effort knowing that I have been granted all things. Then it continues. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. God does not want us to be ineffective or unfruitful. For whoever lacks these qualities is nearsighted, so nearsighted that he's blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. Oh, that's big. If you don't have these things, you're not making that kind of effort, you have forgotten who you are in Christ. Right? This leads to this. Then he says something. Big doozy. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. What? Election? That's, that's God's territory, right? Well, it's not saying secure your election. It's saying confirm it. For if you practice these qualities, you'll never fall. For in this way, there will be a richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord, Savior, Jesus Christ. We'll talk about that last part next week. But you can see that there is effort to be made more than just cerebral. It starts with cerebral. It starts with understanding who you are in Christ and revisiting that over and over and over again. But it doesn't end there. Even though the pursuit of holiness is a response to God's gracious election, it is also the effect of God's gracious election. It is both the response and the effect. Well, what kinds of tools all are there? Well, I'll give you them all. Ready? This is certainly not all of them. And I realize it put, didn't put of in the first one, but oh well. Okay? What are some of the tools? Now, mind you, these are tools of grace. In other words, God has gifted these tools and they affect us. We didn't just choose what affects us. These are the tools God has given to affect us. I begin with the first one because it's the one I've been talking about, meditation. It is the idea of preaching the gospel to yourself every day all the time. It is revisiting the cross. It is beholding the cross that has impact. When you revisit your forgiveness, it has an effect on you in this way. It not only gives you more joy, it makes you more forgiving. When you um, revisit love, the love of Christ, the undeserved, unmerited love of Christ, that makes you more loving. So meditation on it. Who is God? What has He done? Who is Jesus? All those things I talked about last week. The fact that I've been cleansed from sin. The reason I said last week, what happens when you fail to remember this? You will feel dirty. You will feel lost. You will feel guilty. So I need to remember my justification. I need to remember that my sins have been removed as far as the east is from the west. Second, transferring power of God's word. People go, I don't have to read my Bible. No, but why wouldn't you? We dig into God's Word, number one, so we can behold the cross again, but also so that we can behold God. Psalm 46 says, Be still and know I'm God. How do you know who God is? You read about Him. 
Preaching is hard work. And I would be a fool to just let go and let God and get up on Sunday morning and go, now I can't fully depend upon my academic prowess to just do that. There is definitely a spirit-filled, spirit-inspired experience that occurs, but to suggest that I don't have to study, I don't have to dig into God's Word, like, like, oh God, I just don't know anything about God. Open His stinking Word and read about Him. But don't just read, study, dig, wrestle, know. He's given the Word to change us from the inside out. And when you spend time in it, it changes you from the inside out. God will not love you more if you read the Bible more, but you will probably love Him more if you do. That's why we read God's Word. The transforming power of prayer. Consistent, old-fashioned prayer. We're going to talk about this when we do the equip in January quite a bit. It's amazing the kinds of prayers that Paul writes. We're going to look at all Paul's prayers. And the majority, if not all, of Paul's prayers are all about knowing the depth of God's love. They're not a, they don't sound at all like the prayers that we cry out for. Transforming power of worship. We are commended and called in Colossians 3. I have Ephesians there. There's another passage in Colossians 3, I believe it is. And I'll read it to you. Did you know that gathering together and singing, I believe, actually changes us? Sometimes we can get in the mix of just singing without our brains engaged. But Brian is pretty particular, as all our worship leaders are, who pick the songs that we sing. And you begin to actually kind of meditate and think about the words that you're singing. They're powerful and they change us. Colossians 3 commends us to do this. It says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. The transforming power of obedience. Jesus says in that passage in John 15 that His commands are a means to abide in Him and to make our joy complete. Obedience is intended to lead us to joy. We don't think of obedience all the time that way. But obedience requires, um, at times, radical repentance requires sacrificial service. And it's amazing when we choose to love or give or forgive sacrificially and radically like Jesus, what impact that has on us. As much as it is a blessing to obey God's command to go love thy neighbor and to serve the widow and the orphan and those in need, it is more of a blessing for us because Jesus even said it is going to be greater blessing for you to give than to receive. We don't believe that, but I'm telling you, you should, because Jesus said it. Obedience leads to joy and fulfillment and satisfaction. Christian fellowship. How are we changed in Christian fellowship? A brother and sister of Christ has the courage to tell you when you're disobedient and sinful. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
will have the courage to admonish you or have the love to encourage you. To give you love, we need to weep with you, to laugh with you, to serve you, to love you. Like coming together as a church just to eat together is powerful and important. It's not just something we do. It is something that will change us. It will change our love for one another, and it will be a witness to the world. And the power of sharing the gospel. And I would just say, I don't necessarily mean um, evangelizing on the street or sharing at at your work, which I think is important. I just mean discipling other people. Teaching someone else forces you to know what you're going to teach better. Teaching someone else requires, I'm going to stand before you and talk about all these things, talk about sanctification and talk about service and reading God's Word. And if I don't do that, who am I? Not to say I do that perfectly, but it is to say I can't be a hypocrite. So when we choose to share the Gospel and disciple someone else, that changes even our commitment. And if we decide not to do any of those things, God um, has His own way. They're called trials. God just brings trials into us where we have to exert effort in order to survive. But James 1 is very clear about what trials do to us. They are to produce a greater, if you will, communion with Christ. It is to produce godliness in us. James 1 says it this way, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. James will go on later to talk about the discipline of the Lord, the loving discipline of the Lord. Meet trials of various kinds, which I believe in the Greek talks about varying colors. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Implying that we are not perfect nor complete. And so there are many tools that God has graciously given us in order to experience a greater level of righteousness, a greater communion with Christ, a greater uh, sense of satisfaction, if you will, in Christ. And one of the great tensions is, when we start talking about these things, is, well, who is doing what? How much is the Holy Spirit doing and how much am I doing? Because we talk about works too much and that just feels yucky. Feels like I'm taking credit for something that, that I shouldn't be. Let me give you a couple of verses that will not help you. Yeah, it's a little bit of a joke. You can laugh a little bit, jeez. All right. Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians 15:10. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. Great question. Has God's grace towards you been in vain? How would I know if it's in vain or not? On the contrary. Okay, here's how I know it's not in vain. I worked harder than any of them. You go, that sounds kind of prideful, Paul. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is within me. Oh, that seems like a little bit of a paradox. It is. Philippians 2.12 
Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, we're talking about obedience, effort, good old-fashioned obedience, so now, not only as in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation, which sounds very me, feels yucky, weird, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Wait a second, that sounds like a paradox. I know! There's a tension there that's not necessarily resolvable. I'm not sure we're supposed to resolve it. God works in our sanctification and we work as well. I'm not suggesting it's 50-50. I'm suggesting it's 100-100. And I think sometimes we get so lost in the theological explanation for what's going on, we don't do anything. I would just say, you know what? Trust Christ. Work your tail off. And leave it to Him. To figure out how it works out theologically. Now, I believe in sanctification primarily, certainly God is at work, especially positionally. But man, as we saw in the law video, has been given his spirit. And his spirit has been given to help sanctify us further. And this is both passive and active, meaning we do something and we do it by the spirit. Part of our confusion, as I said, is that we can't always tell the difference between walking in the spirit's strength and walking in our strength. Or at least not until it's too late. So here's what I believe um, is probably a good way to look at it. This is not going to be perfectly satisfied, people. But I believe the Spirit of grace gives us desire. And I'll stop there and say this. If you, and I think Jerry Bridges might have said this, if you don't even have a desire to pursue righteousness or fight unrighteousness, you should consider whether you're a Christian. There's a desire that's given by the Spirit, a new heart that's given by the Spirit, a disposition towards sin and, and everything else that's given by the Spirit, but we must respond to those desires. The Spirit of grace gives us, Paul says, energy, gives us power. But we've got to spend it. The Spirit of grace gives us fruit gives us giftings, gives us talents, and we need to cultivate those. Gives us opportunities. You can have gifts of the Spirit and not use them. The Spirit of grace gives us light. What do I mean by that? I mean conviction. And you can resist the Spirit. You resist Him every time you sin. We have to respond to that light. Because C.S. Lewis has said, the Holy Spirit's always screaming, but many of us have learned to shove our fists in His mouth. The Spirit gives us understanding of this. He's a teacher. He's a helper. He gives us comfort. And He gives us tools. Some I've listed. He's given us prayer. He's given us His Word. He's given us the gathering of the church. 
He's given us our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's given us worship. He's given us uh, clear directions on obedience and service. Like, we have to actually obey. And it would be foolish for me to tell you, like, it's okay if you don't obey. It's no big deal. That would go against everything that Jesus taught, everything the apostles taught. But unfortunately, our passive role in positional sanctification, and it is passive, It's gotten emphasized to the point where Christians, basically, I don't know how they understand, but they, a lot of them reject like Paul's and Peter's commands to go and to fight and to strive and to put on and put off and make every effort. And how do they? I don't know what they would, how they would see those. And when someone says any of those, strive, do, work, what comes out? You know what comes out? The L word. You know what the L word is, right? Legalism. You must be a legalist. Of course, they don't define what they mean by legalist, but it must mean Pharisee, and Pharisees were bad. Jesus hated them, so I don't want to be that. And they did everything right, so we must just not do anything. There's a great... um, much better teaching than mine by Kevin DeYoung uh, for the Gospel Together. I think it was like 2012 maybe. You wouldn't know if that what was. But after that teaching, there was a little um, kind of go-around with John Piper and some really smart British dude and Matt Chandler and Kevin DeYoung. And one of the men asked this question, how much effort can or should be exerted until one's pursuit of holiness becomes legalistic? How much until it becomes legalistic? And Piper's response was awesome. It's never too much. Because it's never about quantity. It's never ever been about quantity. It's always been about motivation. What is your motivation? It's not wrong to be moral. It's not wrong to work hard to do good. It's not wrong to work at learning to know God. It's not wrong to pray. It's not wrong to try and strive to be a better husband and wife. It's not wrong to to work and fight to live more and love more like Christ. It is wrong to believe that any of your efforts are meritous in nature. That any of your efforts are going to make God love you more. That is what is wrong. But it's not wrong to pursue those things to the glory of God and for our joy. And I believe as much as those fans of the L word would like to say that it is possible to pursue godliness and call others to do the same in response to Jesus' love and not to obtain it. And that's what we should do. In other words, uh, effort's not a bad word. Effort's not a bad word. And as we remember and celebrate all that Jesus has saved us from, we should 
equally, with great passion, celebrate everything that Jesus has saved us to. We don't just celebrate the resur—I mean, the crucifixion. We also have to talk about the resurrection. We don't just talk about death of the old life and salvation and all those things. We talk about a walking in the newness of life and glorification and being with Jesus. J.I. Packer, I think, said it best. Christian motto should not be let go and let God, but trust God and get going. Because our pursuit of holiness is not just a response to God's grace, it's the effect of it. What ought to be. So we believe Jesus, we work for Jesus, we trust Jesus, and we boast in Jesus. And we have no fear of failure. That's the beauty. When we screw up, we boast in Jesus. When we succeed, we boast in Jesus. Always resting in the righteousness we have and praying and hoping for God to make us, if you will, more holy in our lives. That is progressive righteousness or progressive sanctification, part one. Part two is much more scary and for next week. And that is this. Why should we pursue righteousness? Some will argue that the only motivation is gratitude. That we just pursue righteousness because of how grateful we are for what God has done. I would say there's a couple other motivations. And they have to do with the promises of Jesus and the warnings of Jesus. Those are equally powerful motivations. And so next week we're going to look at some of those verses of what it means to persevere. What it means to uh, pursue right. Is it, is it just I'm, I'm saved? Once saved, always saved? Or is there a sense where Christians persevere in the pursuit of righteousness? That will be, I don't say mind-blowing, but it'll be good. It'll be good. I know it's a lot of information. I'm glad you guys are just like <sighs> swallowing all it up. I'll put these notes somewhere online so you guys can find them. I'm going to pray. Uh, and then if you have questions, I'll be up here and maybe I can answer them. If not, I'll have uh, someone else answer them. So let me pray. Father, thank you so much for teaching us tonight and helping us to understand what it means to pursue righteousness, how to pursue it. Let us always pursue it, Lord, in response to you from a position that you love us, that you accept us, that we're not trying to impress you, we're not trying to get your approval, but we are trying to commune with you more, to know you more, to experience a deeper sense of intimacy with you, and to experience even more joy in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for the desires you've given us, for the tools you've given us, I pray that we will make use of them and spend our energy pursuing righteous ways which will honor you, bring grace to the world, and I believe joy and satisfaction to our lives. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Go in grace, peeps. <laughs>